And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook, of, brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. Elijah said to Ahab, Go up, eat, and drink, for there is a sound of the rushing of rain. So Ahab went up to eat and to drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel. He bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees. And he said to his servant, Go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, There is nothing. And he said again, Go again seven times. And at the seventh time he said, Behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. And he said, Go up, say to Ahab, Prepare your chariot and go down, lest the rain stop you. In a little while the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. Thank you very much, Becca. This is the word of God. We have been in this series now for three, and actually fourth if you count the one I did um, a couple years ago, on the life and the ministry of the prophet Elijah. Prophets in the Old and New Testament, they're very interesting characters. They're very interesting people. They are sent by God in evil times to a people who have strayed away from righteousness and from a genuine worship of God. This was the time of the book of Kings. The northern kingdom of Israel, also known as Ephraim, is more wicked than her sister Judah because she never has a righteous king. There are various other times prophets appear in the biblical narrative. And we, we think most about them because they're very bold people. That God works through them through many miraculous ways. But one thing we should take into account is they're not well-liked people. We have talked about Elijah. Everybody wants him dead because he prays and God stops up the heavens. It doesn't rain on the earth for three and a half years. That doesn't make you well-liked. There are other prophets like Jer Jeremiah who are literally lowered into raw sewage. I was told at teen camp that uh, one of the nights um, was a night where um, they were telling people, telling the kids to pray and to see if they are called into ministry. I think it would have been very interesting if they would have been like, you know, who's ever willing to be lowered into raw sewage, come up to the front and to see how many kids would come up to the front. It's not glamorous. They would never, they would never appear on the cover of Time magazine as the person of the year. They would not be influential. They would not be, they would not be people who uh, all these things uh, would be said about them. They would have been people who had been reviled. Because there's nothing, there's nothing that elicits the most fierce kind of angry is when somebody touches on a sin that you are unrepentant about. That is a time where it hits close to home. And uh, Elijah is one of these people. Elijah is a prophet. Elijah has quite a few spectacular miracles. Already he shuts up the heavens, feeds himself and a widow's family with, a, with only one jar of flour and one jug of oil. And not just that, once that widow's son dies, he raises the boy back from the dead. But in the description I just read, I am missing something critical. It's that Elijah didn't do any of these things. God did these things through Elijah. 
James 5.17 says this, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it may not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Let me read that again. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He was not a superhero. He did not have mutant powers that let him control the weather. He was just a dude who prayed. James' point is that any of us, if we pray as fervently, if we pray, if we, if, he says that if a righteous person prays, it is effective and powerful if it is done fervently. He wasn't a superhero with special powers. He was a man of prayer. We need to stop defining miracles in the Bible like they are superpowers. And that might seem weird coming from me, because if you're in my house and you come to my basement, you will be, you will be assaulted with superhero stuff, because that's just kind of one of my interests. So it might be weird coming from me to say that we need to stop treating the miracles in the Bible so childish, that we need to see who the true power comes from, because that's what James saying. He wasn't a superhero. He was a man like any others, like any other He just prayed, and he prayed, he prayed fervently. He has no power in and of himself. He has nothing apart from God, but in Yahweh, he has everything, and he knew it. Once again, this is something that we need to stop seeing, because there are some people who believe that you have power in and of yourself apart from God, and that is just not the case. That is not the case. If that was the case, there could have been somebody in Jerusalem who could have prayed for the the rain to fall who could pray and believe on some other God. But no, there's only one power source, and that is God himself. You may not be an Old Testament prophet, but you can pray like one, and God will hear you the way he heard Elijah. That's what this series is all about. It is about learning to pray like a prophet. It has been a long journey from 1 Kings 17, verse 1. Now Elijah the Tishabite and get. Tishbite and Gilead said to, um, said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years, except at my word. Go to 18.1. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year saying, go show yourself to Ahab and I will send rain upon the earth. One thing the Bible does, and it does this on purpose, is it uses foreshadowing. At least in literature, that's what we call it, foreshadowing. It'll mention something at the beginning of a story, then then it capitalizes on later on in the story. And this is used, um, people who who are wise writers, of all kinds of things. This is not just used in fiction, but also in nonfiction, because this is things that happen. Um, For instance, uh, Benjamin Franklin, um, he was sent to England to try to smooth things over before the revolution happened. Um, people weren't exactly sure, like, do we really want to do this? So he's over in England when news of the Boston Tea Party reaches England. So he's called before uh, what is called the cockpit, which is a bunch of English nobility. And um, he's thinking this is for an official meeting that they're going to talk about how to um, alleviate the uh, coercive lo- acts. And um, instead, it's really, it was... He was kind of a bait and switch. He gets in there, and they berate him, berate him, berate him, berate him. They, they, they shame him in front of everybody. He really takes it to heart as well. During that day, he was wearing a denim suit. And Benjamin Franklin is kind of a weird guy in history, but, I mean, denim suits have really never been in style. I think they're called Canadian tuxedos. Um, he's wearing this Canadian tuxedo, and uh, so he remembers that day, and he, he, he kind of holds a grudge. 
Fast forward towards the end of the revolution, and uh, he is a he is American's ambassador to France, and uh, he is he is about to go into negotiations on a ceasefire and surrender of England to stop the hostilities in the New World. And uh, guess what he's wearing to that meeting? That's right, that same denim suit. He had he had preserved it throughout all of those years so that he could shove it in the nobility's face. You know what he actually asked for in, in, the sur- in their surrender is he wanted all of Canada. Um, obviously, he didn't get that. Thank you, Jesus. But anyway, um, so what I'm trying to say here is the foreshadowing. It's used not just in fiction, but also in nonfiction like it is here. In 17.1, we have Elijah praying that it won't rain. In 18.1, the word of God comes to Elijah to tell him that it will rain after he meets with the king. In 17.1, it might seem odd that you don't, it might seem odd if you don't know the Old Testament, especially the book of the law. In 18, Elijah hears from God that it will not rain, but in eight, but in 17, Elijah also heard that it would not rain. Not a special new word from God or still quiet voice, but he was a man of God's word. Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 16, but be careful that you do not entice to turn aside to worship and bow down to other gods, or the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you. He will shut the heavens so that there will be no rain, nor, nor will the land yield its produce, and you will soon perish from the good land that the Lord is giving you. Elijah knew God's word. See, if you know God's word, you don't need a special word to be obedient. In fact, oftentimes, God just won't give it because you should follow his word. If there's something you're doing today that you shouldn't be doing, or if there's something you're not doing that you should be doing, do not wait to hear the still small voice or, or any kind of the spiritual words we try to get out of obedience with. Be obedient. Elijah knew the word of the Lord about what happens when God's people turn aside to idols. He didn't need to hear something more, and neither do we. Are you doing something that God has said in his word not to do? You don't need a special word to stop doing it. Is there, is there something you should be doing, like sharing your faith? You do not need a special word to do this either. You already have it. The people didn't need Mount Carmel to know that God hates idol worship. He had already told them. And there would have been so much suffering, so much problems, that they would have just followed his word. When you read the scripture, you should pray according to the scripture or what is the point. It is not just a book that has a lot of nice stories in it, but it is a guidepost for our very lives. Tony Evans, when preaching on this scripture, um, had a very good, insightful thing to say, and I just want to share it with you today, is that if you don't know God's word, you don't know how to pray. I thought that was very good. It probably take me the rest of the time really to unpack it, but it's really, it's not just so much knowing God's word or reading God's word, but having an intimate knowledge of God's word, of knowing what God's promises for you are, you don't know how to pray. See, the name of Jesus is not a magic word to get what you want. To pray in the name of Jesus is to pray according to the will of Jesus Christ. And how do you know what Christ's will for you is unless you read the scripture? If you haven't known by now, you know, uh, we're going up on two years, Becca, here at Faith Church. In my prayers, I use a lot of scripture. If you don't know that, you need to start reading the scripture because you're not getting the references, and I'm not going to spell every reference out. Um, read God's word. If you don't know God's word, you don't know how to pray. Now, this isn't a perfect statement because obviously before you ever knew God's word, you crawled out to the Lord. He heard you and saved you. 
But as you mature in your faith, if you want powerful, effective prayers, read God's word. It has been a long journey, like I said before, between 17 and 18. This is really a close of one chapter in Elijah's life. That's why I'm kind of going back and really saying this as a whole. In chapter 17 and 18, there's a lot going on here that readers at the time, they would have caught on immediately, and those who were living at this time would have caught on immediately, but we don't because we don't really know a lot about that time in that area. See, what is going on and why, why God specifically shuts up the heavens for no rain? And then what happens at Mount Carmel, where fire comes from heaven, devours the bull, devours the um, the uh, trough of water that's around it, and, and so on and so forth. That was all to shove into the face of what they believed about the god Baal. Baal, many of us have no clue if he is, and since I nobody's told me today that they have a doctorate in Canaanite um, religion, I'm assuming maybe you don't either, and that's okay. But Baal was a weather god. He was sovereign, they thought he was sovereign anyway, over rain, water, and fire. So what does God do? He takes away the rain, he consumes the fire, he consumes the water, and then he takes and then he brings down fire from heaven. Um, the way we probably understand is better today, and, thank, and we can thank uh, the MCU for this, but Thor. They were basically thinking Thor. Literally, Thor was bringing all of this, the people of God at the time, a lot of this, once again, has to do with that God, with the God Baal. What God does in, in disciplining Israel is really to show them how powerless this make-believe God was. He is not the one who brings the rain. It is Yahweh who brings the rain. It is Yahweh who does these things. Once again, Yahweh is the, is the Hebrew proper word for God. Um, if you don't know anything about these figures, maybe it might help you to think of him as Thor. Um, can you imagine if the president today um, told the people to start worshiping Thor so that we'll have a good harvest? Thor, using his hammer, can bring the rains and the water and the fire from heaven, lightning, which results in fertility. You know, perhaps, uh, perhaps uh, Joe wouldn't uh, shut down the churches, but the new religion being very popular, you'd start seeing pastors start preaching on the goodness of Thor this seems so incredibly ridiculous. But you better not run your air conditioner too long or global warming will burn more of California. Um, you, better, you, you, better not, uh, you better not go outside without a mask or you know something else, an invisible enemy will kill you. We have all kinds of weird things that we believe that makes its way into churches all the time, don't we? So we shouldn't look down upon them but to realize that idol worship is much more expansive than literally worshiping a figure made out of stone, but anything that we see as the one who brings, who brings the rain, who brings the blessings, or takes away the blessings. This was what they are reading. So when they, in, in the fire on Mount Carmel, this is a complete repudiation of Baal. It was really shoving in the face. Baal doesn't bring the rain. Three and a half years, no rain. All the prophets of Baal, they are praying, they are cutting themselves, there is no rain. And at Mount Carmel, they can't even bring fire from heaven. That's one of the things Baal did. They thought they had home field advantage at Mount Carmel, the prophets of Baal. Because they believed that Mount Carmel was where the gods lived. 
They thought that's where the gods lived, and they thought that, and they thought that they could, um, they thought that, well, Elijah's in trouble here because we will have, we'll have home field advantage, and that was the pagan thought that if you are in the place where the gods have power, they'll have more power there. And if, even though Baal isn't bringing the, isn't bringing the waters, he's not bringing the rain, he'll bring the lightning, none of this stuff happens. They cut themselves, and Elijah, one prayer, fire comes down from heaven. And what we have read today is the culmination of all the things that we have seen going from chapter 17 and 18. What is playing out in 1 Kings 17 and 18 is what God had told Solomon in 2 Chronicles 7.14. Very popular verse. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I'll hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. Many of us don't read the previous verse there where God says, when I bring about the calamity. There's, there's pastors who say, God, God doesn't do those things. God himself says, I do those things. He says, when I do this, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways. I will hear from heaven. I'll forgive their sins and I'll heal their land. What we've seen play out in 1 Kings 17 and 18 is this going on. God's people who are called by his name have turned to other idols. So he shut up the heavens. Now his people who are called by his name have humbled themselves and prayed. That is what we read in verse 39. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. I direct your attention to your Bible. If, by the way, if I'm preaching, you don't have your Bibles open somehow, you, you really should because I'm going verse by verse. The, the spelling of Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Perhaps you remember me preaching on this before. That is the, the translator's way of telling us that is not Elohim. That is not all the generic words for God, but it is the proper name for God in the Old Testament, Yahweh. Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God. That's significant for the people. All of Israel is supposed to be there. And they're saying, Yahweh is God. That's to the exclusion of Baal. Baal doesn't bring the rain. He doesn't bring the daily bread. Yahweh, the true covenant-keeping God of Israel, he is Lord. They have humbled themselves by putting their face on the ground. They have prayed and they even turned from their wicked ways. They seized the prophets of, prophets of Baal according to the word of Elijah the prophet and they slaughter them. Something that they should have done when these people started coming to their country in the first place. That is what we see play out here in 1 Kings 17, 18, is God's word being fulfilled, his directive that if his people who are called by his name will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways, he'll hear from heaven and he'll heal their land. Many people like to point out this verse isn't the Second Chronicles one. It's not for America. And that's true. That is not a promise for America. It's a promise for Israel. And every time I see that, I'm like, you know, I, I kind of want to mockingly be, congratulations. Okay, but now explain that for people today. Because all scriptures God breathed, useful for teaching and rebuke and training in righteousness so that the child of God may be equipped for every righteous work, for every good work, that is. Um, so you can't just be like, well, that was for them. We don't have to look at it. No, that the, the concept still applies, doesn't does it not? God's people who are called by his name humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways. The Lord, he is God. He, the Lord, he is God. 
so many people, so many people want blessing without obedience. They claim they love Jesus, but Jesus himself said, if you love me, you will do what I command. People don't want to tear down their idols. They want the blessing, but God is not going to bless you so you can spend it on your idol. James 5.16 is about us. What happened in Elijah's life is for us. That's the point of James 5, is that Elijah was a person with a nature like ours. He prayed fervently and God heard him. So let's learn the kinds of prayers that shut up the heavens and open up the heavens. I want to talk today about fervent prayer, about the prayers that make the rains come again. I've split it up, split this up into three parts, and it is passionate prayers, persistent prayers, and pregnant prayers. Let's start with uh, verses 41 and 42 and passionate prayers. Verses uh, 41 and 42. And Elijah said to Ahab, go up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of rushing rain. Elijah hears something that Ahab doesn't. Right now, there is tons of sounds you cannot hear. Right now, there is all kinds of radio waves, ultrasonic waves, all kinds of waves that are permeating, going through you, that you can't hear because you aren't attuned to the right frequency. There is stuff that even you are attuned to the right frequency, but there's so much ambient noise you can't hear. Over in Minnesota, Minneapolis, there is a room you can go in, and it is the most quiet room on the face of the earth. It's just lined with sound absorbers. People can't stand to be in that room for more than two hours because you can hear your very blood rushing through your veins. Elijah hears something Ahab can't. He says, I hear the sound of rushing, rushing rain. There isn't rushing rain. But Elijah has gotten a promise from God, and he trusts that promise that it is going to rain. Because why? Because God's people who are called by his name have humbled themselves and prayed and turned from their wicked ways. Ahab is deaf to the voice of God. Elijah has a connection with the source that Ahab doesn't. Ahab, if he ever read the Torah, just simply doesn't care. But Elijah remembers the word of the Lord spoken first to Solomon and then to himself. God's people who are called by his name have humbled themselves and prayed and turned from their wicked ways. God is heard from heaven and is about to heal the land. What does that sound like? Rushing rain. It's after this that Elijah prays for something he knows that God will already do. Why pray for what God is already promised he's going to do? Well, it's because he hears something that Ahab doesn't. After all, the sheep hears the shepherd's voice. In verse 42, we have the posture of prayer. So Ahab went to eat and drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel, and he bowed himself down on the earth, and he put his face between his knees. Our posture before God matters. So Elijah, he bows himself to the ground. Hopefully I don't hurt anything here. And he puts his face between his knees. I don't think I can do this. <laughs> the man who stood before God is now curled up in a ball before God over something he knows that God will do. Our posture before God matters. We do have the joy and confidence to approach the throne of grace with confidence, but unfortunately, this often leads to such a cav cavalier attitude that takes away any of the holiness of God. In the past, the way this has worked is that churches, they will have a 
they will have maybe a cross. Maybe it will be something with somebody's name on it or whatever, and it becomes a totem, something magic, and it's ridiculous. So against God's word. Be careful with religious iconography in your home that you are not worshiping these things or have an aid to worship. We're not supposed to do that. To this point, Becca knows this in our house, I don't even allow any representations of God the Father because I don't even want to bump up against violating God's word on these things. In the past, it's the way it's been that, but now, for the past I don't know how long, really, uh, we've gotten more creative in this. I call this stupid pop culture Christianity that takes away the reverence and the holiness of God. This is, uh, once again, this has been very creative, and I think probably one of the most egregious was in, uh, I don't know, late 90s, early 2000s, there was a shirt that was very popular. You saw it at conventions, you saw it at music festivals, and it was Jesus is my homeboy. My apologies if you wore this shirt, but it just grieves the Spirit of God. Where's the holiness? We know we can approach the throne of grace with confidence, but it's still a throne. We are friends, but we are friends with the King. The King of kings and the Lord of lords. Jesus says to fear God. And we lose the fear of God all the time. And we come to him so casually. Where have we lost the trembling before the Lord? What must our posture look like before God who opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble? He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Elijah knows that God will cause it to rain. God told him so. He is confident not only because of past experience, remember McRavens, but he also has a relationship with God as well. And for Elijah, prayer was not just sitting on Santa's lap asking for things, but it was a posture before God of desperate, ardent vulnerability. He curls up into a ball praying for his nation. God, make us a people who pray like that. His posture is the posture of repentance, even though he has nothing to repent about. But he repents for his nation. This is intercessory prayer. When you pray, when you stand in the gap for someone else, maybe you don't have anything to repent for, but you take on the posture of repentance, begging God for his mercy on an individual. Salvation's of the Lord. Do we believe that? Or do we believe it's of the mind that we can just convince somebody into the kingdom? cannot. It is of the Lord. The Holy Spirit does that. So the most important part of evangelism is prayer. If you are not praying ardently, passionately for the people you're evangelizing to, you don't really care. That's a hard thing to say, isn't it? Because we have all these things. We'll go into the town. We'll take, we'll, we'll do a survey and everything like that. But have we taken time to ardently on our face before God to pray David Wilkerson, the founder of Teen Challenge, which has done so much incredible work for the kingdom of God. He has this uh, sermon called A Call to Anguish. It always shakes me when I hear it. I was listening to it this morning. He was actually preaching on Nehemiah, which, by the way, next week for Adult Sunday School, we start Nehemiah. He's preaching on Nehemiah, and he says that there's, there comes this time where God will look for somebody who's willing to follow him, and he will place an anguish on him for Nehemiah. He heard the walls had been fallen, they'd been crushed. For Elijah, he looks around, and he doesn't see statue. He does not see the altar of the Lord. He sees them broken down and in ruin. And up above them are the profaning statues of Baal. 
a powerless, toothless God. And he is filled with anguish for his people. So when he prays to God, he takes on the posture of anguish. It's a passionate prayer. George Hegel said, nothing great in this world has ever been accomplished without passion. Fervent prayers are passionate prayers. They are prayers that aren't looking at the time. Prayers that feel like your sweat is becoming drops of blood. They are much more than the milk toast offerings we often present before God. And we wonder why God doesn't hear us when we ourselves didn't care so much to take time to pray. Satan attacks our passions for this very reason. If you want to read a book that will just take the top off of spiritual warfare for you, I suggest Screwtape Letters. It's not an inspired book, but man, I think it has so much information. Back for me and Becca one time, God called us on the carpet while, while we were actually at a play on this. And um, one of the things in there that the, the, the demon, the, the, the devils will constantly attack is the man's passion to make him a connoisseur of churches, to make him a critic. No wonder, yes, Satan attacks our passions because he's afraid of a passionate prayer by God's people because he knows this changes things, most of all, the person's very heart. How much time do you spend praying about your fears and how much time do you spend worrying about your fears? What's that ratio look like? So many of us will spend our passions on so many things that don't satisfy Satan couldn't be happier that a person will spend all night arguing on Facebook about some stupid thing and then will go to work and just trying to get through their day without actually telling somebody the goodness of Jesus Christ because you've already spent all the passion. You don't have anything left for prayer. You don't have anything left for other things. Satan attacks our passions because he does not. He wants a docile people because a docile people will run to hell. And a docile church will not pray or try to stop them from doing so. George MacDonald, the man who inspired C.S. Lewis. So almost everything you read in C.S. Lewis, you owe that to George MacDonald. He says this, It is our best work that God wants, not the dregs of our exhaustion. I think he must prefer quality to quantity. So when you go to your prayer closet, and when is it at the end of the day, and you're just exhausted, you're like, Oh, Father, bless me uh, um, for for these things. I, I here's my checklist of things I want, and um, I, I I got it off for the day, so now I'm done. Do we give him our best, our first fruits, or what's left over? Just the dregs of what's left over. I like that quote because it makes me think of what uh, people in the military have told me about grog, which sounds gross. Um, apparently, uh, during celebrations, like everybody brings something to put into the grog bowl. And, um, like, I guess if you're, uh, if you're lower on the totem pole, they make you scrape the bottom because there's all kinds of floaties and stuff. Is that what we give to God or do we give him what's good? Do we give him the first fruits of our passion? A passionate prayer is a fervent prayer. That is what's effective, not just checking it off our checklist for today. Because circumstances, circumstances do not dictate prayer. Prayer dictates circumstances. Elijah knows that God will call it, cause it to rain. I repeat this again and again and again, because this cues us in to Elijah's heart. Elijah read that if God's people who are called by his name turn from their wicked ways, he will cause it to rain. And that is what happened. So he passionately prays. The widow 
The widow who is, allow, who is allowing Elijah to live there has a son who dies. Elijah doesn't know if the boy will live, so he prays passionately. The people have prayed, turned from their wicked ways, and Elijah has a word from God this time that it will rain. But guess how he prays? Yes, passionately. He finds the first, he, he prays the first time, and he sends out his servant. His servant comes back. This happens seven times. He prays seven times. Why? Well, seven is the number of completion, but Elijah doesn't know anywhere, any way else to pray. He prays until something happens. It's why God hears him. His circumstance didn't di- dictate his prayers. Like the rest of Israel, he had a passion, like the, like the, unlike the rest of Israel, he had a passionate pursuit of the glory of God. So passionate prayers are fervent prayers, persistent prayers. Verse 43 and 44. <coughs> Excuse me. And he said to his servant, go up and look toward the sea. And he ran up and he said, there is nothing. And he said, go again seven times. Go again seven times. And at the seventh time, he said, behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. And he said, go up and to say to Ahab, prepare your chariot to go down, lest the rain stop you. Prayer is not twisting God's arm to do something he would not be otherwise inclined to do. It's about relationship with him. Persistent prayer is not about doubt. And this is one thing, I mean, people have written books on this, and they're just completely wrong, that when you pray, you shouldn't pray again about the same thing, because that shows a lack of faith. No, it doesn't. I guarantee you, Elijah had no lack of faith here. But seven times he has a servant go up the entire time. He is praying so fervently, so passionately. It's persistent prayers. His persistent prayer is about relationship. Because after all, do we not call, talk about prayer being talking with God? Jesus tells a story to illustrate how we should pray and not give up. This is known as the persistent widow. He says there was a widow and an unjust judge. The widow pleads with the judge to give her justice, and he doesn't, so she keeps coming back and back and back until he relents. Jesus said, how much more will God answer our prayers, the just judge of the universe? Persistent prayer is the rule, not the exception. So don't lose heart if your prayer isn't answered right away. Seven times. Elijah prays seven times. Seven is the number of completion, but he doesn't stop at seven because seven is seven. He stops because his servant comes down to him and tells him that there is a cloud like a man's hand. I think for Elijah, if he had to pray 777 times, he would have done that too. Persistent prayer looks for the Holy Spirit to accomplish in the person what is being accomplished in the situation. In Matthew 7, verse 7, um, he, uh, Jesus tells his followers, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open. Each of these verbs is a president, present imperatives. Present imperatives. What that means is you start, but you keep going. So you ask and keep asking. You seek and keep seeking. You keep knock and keep knocking. Persistent prayer is so much like that. That is part of fervent prayer. We pray and we keep praying. Because ultimately, it's not about the thing. It's about the relationship and connection we have with God. Finally, pregnant prayers. Verses 45 and 46. And in a little while, the heavens grew black and clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. 
And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he gathered up his garments and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. So this point was originally going to be expectant prayers. But if you know anything about preaching or public speaking, alliteration is so much better than not using alliteration. So I clicked on it. It was like, send them, give me a P1, pregnant. It fits well, though, doesn't it? Because what has been conceived in heaven is about to be birthed on earth. He has pregnant prayers because he expects God to do something. Once again, this fits, too, because the rain has already been promised. It's already been conceived in heaven. What is the rain waiting for? The people to humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways. This has happened, so Elijah is expecting it. In your prayers, are you believing that God will work or just hoping or wishing? There is an incredible difference in our prayers when we go from wishing and hoping to expecting. I can wish and hope for a lot of things. But what I expect, what my heart's desire is, well, if I've been in God's word, if I've really been in prayer, it is the things of God. In our Revelation study, there's this part with the seals. Nobody can open the seals. Nobody's worthy to open the seals. And John the Apostle starts weeping. He starts weeping. And I'd asked in our, in our Wednesday thing, why, why would he weep over this? Because the thought of God's glory being denied was worse to him than anything else could be. He has an expectation that God would be glorified. Elijah trusted God. This seems like a duh statement. He's a prophet. Of course he trusted God. But he really trusted God. He prayed each time and asked his servant what was going on because he knew that God was going to do what he said he would do. His prayers were not just hopes or wishes, but he believed that God could and would. He, after all, was praying according to the word of God. The, the cloud that first comes up is like a man's hands. You ever wonder why God first sends a small cloud before the heavy clouds? Well, first... If you, you really can't get better symbolism, that is God's hand and not Baal's hand that causes the rain. Second, it's validation of Elijah's faith, faith before the big validation. And God does this. Sometimes there's something that God is doing in our life, and he gives us a taste before the full fulfillment. And it's a bit of God's mercy because that helps us know that, well, I just need to be patient. I just need to be patient. God is working in the circumstance. I haven't seen the final fulfillment, but it's something right before that. It's also a bit of God's mercy for Elijah and Ahab and those who are there, because if they stick around, um, they're going to get caught in the rain, and that won't go very well for them. And it uh, reminds me of this story about during a hurricane, this man prays and he hears from God that God will save him. So his uh, neighbor comes by. He's like, hey, I got my truck loaded up. You want to come with me out of town before the rains come? He says, no, 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 God will save me. Rain start start falling, the, the water starts rising, and a man comes over in a boat, and he says, um, hey, my boat's ready. You want to come in here before it gets any worse? He says, no, God will save me. The rains fall, the water rises, it goes up to the roof, the man's on the roof. Finally, a rescue helicopter comes out there. The man in the helicopter is like, you know, get in, you know, grab the line. And the man's like, no, God will save me. Well, the rains fall, the waters rise, the man drowns, and he is, he is over in heaven, and he is, and he's kind of upset with God. He's like, God, you told me you would save me. And God tells him, well, I sent a truck, I sent a boat, I sent a helicopter. 
This is a bit of mercy as well, a warning to them that when God pours out the rain, he really pours it down. Jeremiah, Jeremiah 12, 5. Um, so a, um, Elijah, he gathers up his, he gathers up his uh, tunic, tucks it into his belt, and he then runs faster than Ahab's chariot. So a chariot being um, pulled by a horse. So Elijah really had to book it. So when it talks about him, like, you know, gathering up his tunic and putting it in his belt, that's how people ran back then. It had been hard to run in a tunic. Um, Rocky's here, if you remember the, the tunic I gave you, probably have been difficult too. So they would gird up their loins. And what they'd do, they'd gather it up, they'd wrap it around, and it would kind of look kind of like a big diaper. That's why older men didn't run, because it was seen as kind of a little bit of a ridiculous thing. So he does that, and he actually outpaces Ahab's horses. Jeremiah 12.5. If you have raced with men on foot and they have wearied you, how will you compete with horses? And if in a safe land you are, tr- um, you are so trusting, what will you do in the thicket of the Jordan? Elijah outpaces Ahab, Ahab's very horses. Yet another miracle from God that God is doing through Elijah and with a message. Ahab is a weak man, but he's also a king. His weakness has costed lives and will continue costing many more lives, including his own. It is a condemnation from God. See, even the loyal Israelites, those who are part of God's remnant, have spiritually outpaced Ahab for quite a while. It's a warning to him to get back on the right path. Of course, he still does not do this. It's interesting to me, I guess this is a short deviation from what I'm preaching about, um, the different ways that God deals with Jeremiah and Elijah. You'll find this in your own life. God deals with you as an individual. He doesn't deal with you the way that he deals with me. So Elijah, we'll be reading about this in the next chapter um, in my next sermon. Jezebel finds out about what Elijah did, and she wants him dead. And Elijah has a moment of weakness. He's not a superhuman person. He's just a, he's just a person like the rest of us. And all the stress of three and a half years gets to him. In fact, he gets to the point where he tells God, I just want to die. And God very lovingly gives him a place to rest, sends him an angel to feed him several times before this. And um, I saw this thing on Facebook. I thought it was funny. Um, There's some times where God is just like, have a good meal and have a nap. There's an incredible spiritual healing in that. And that, that that is true. That was Elijah. Jeremiah, on the other hand, that's what I read to you today, It's like, stop whining, get up and do what you're supposed to do. So sometimes God lets you have a nap and a meal, and sometimes he slaps you upside the head and tells you to get up. I can confidently tell you I have been in both places. (laughs) So let me put this all together. The fervent prayer of a righteous man, a righteous woman, availeth much. It's this. The passionate, persistent, pregnant prayer of God's people has power in the providences of his presence to purify and provoke hearts. To practical, pious purposes of our divine parent, whether a pauper or prophet, persecuted or prosperous, the progenerator of planets and photons has a proclamation that are not according to our prerogatives, that are not according to our preferences, but lead to our perfection. Or as James tells it, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Worship team, would you come up? Elijah, I've said this many times this week, he only knows one way to pray. 
In this time of his life, he has one, he, he has one thing, and that is God. And God was more than enough for him. It won't always be that way for Elijah, but he remembers the time when he was fed by ravens, and this will sustain him throughout all things. So when he's praying in great times or in times of great sorrow, he prays the same way fervently. He won't kneel before men, but he stood before God. He also knew how to pray for a nation on his face in the posture of repentance and mourning. He expected God to fulfill his word because he knew whom he have believed in. So for you today, what's your prayer life like? Has has the devil succeeded in turning you into a critic instead of an intercessor? Do you remember the times you would fall on your face before God calling for his mercy on a nation, on a people, on an individual? Have you ever been there? Today, God is saying to you to come back, to present before him once again passionate, persistent, pregnant prayers. The same God who worked in the beginning will continue to work. The worship team is going to lead us in prayer, and not prayer, and lead us in, in a song. This is what I want to encourage you today during this time we have to respond to the message. What is something that weighs heavily on your heart? Maybe it's something you've given up on. God doesn't want you to give up on it. He wants to resurrect it once again. During this song, passionately, persistently, and with expectation, present your request before God.